Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Chat, where we're working to destroy and dismantle stereotypes about justice-impacted people. We can't wait for you to hear from our next guest, so stay tuned. Welcome to another episode of The Chat, and we're really excited to have Zach Goodman here with us today. He is from Recidivis. Uh, Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And so the first question that we have for you is just tell us a little bit about Recidivis and what your organization does. Sure. Recidivis is a nonprofit that works with criminal justice agencies, so far primarily departments of corrections. And we build for our state partners uh, three tools. One tool that we build is internal dashboards. So these are things that a Department of Corrections leader might use to see what is the ground truth inside of their department. What's the size of some populations? How many people are transitioning between different compartments? So that might be going from, say, prison to parole or parole back to prison. Another tool we make is uh, public dashboards, which is very similar to the internal dashboards, but because we want to protect individuals' privacy, they're a little bit less granular. And then a third tool that we make are tools for line staff. These are like parole officers or case managers. And these help them complete their day-to-day duties, keep track of the different clients that they're responsible for, and make sure that everything happens in a timely manner. In addition to those tools, we also perform analysis. One of our analysis analyses that we produce is uh, legislation impact modeling. So looking at how much a proposed piece of legislation might affect populations and how much it might affect costs. And we also do some ad hoc analysis of programs and policies for our state partners. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like you do quite a bit there. Um, I'm very excited to kind of learn a little bit more about some of these pieces too, as I was kind of writing down some notes. Um, I know you had talked about the dashboards as far as just the first thing that you mentioned for like an internal function of something that like a corrections department could use. Are you like, are there a certain number of states that you're currently working with? Or if like there was a, you know, a department that was interested in getting access to this kind of internal uh, database, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, one of the things that's really cool about Recidivis is that everything we make is open source. And the way that we work with states is we try to map each state's own data to a structure that is common across all of our states. So we build a platform that works for every state, even though each state's data look very different. In fact, I've worked personally with, uh, I want to say about nine states data at this point, and I've seen very little commonalities in the structure. So it's kind of cool that even though each state built its data platform completely independently, we can still use this common code that produces these dashboards for the states um, and save a lot of time that way. I mean, it's kind of silly to build 50 independent dashboards when all the DOCs in the United States effectively need to have the same information. Um, So there's a a really high efficiency savings doing it the way that we're doing it. Um, And I'm, I'm really glad to know that something like recidivism exists. I was in grad school not too long ago and coming out of grad school, never heard of recidivism and stumbled upon it. And as soon as I started talking to people who work for the company, um, I just knew it made a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, the efficiency savings alone is um, very cool. Yeah, so it sounds really interesting. I mean, what 
obviously you're saying like there's an, there's a efficiency savings, like what other benefits are there to having this? You had mentioned kind of something about there, there should be something standardized, but also something specifically tailored, how each state kind of operates a little bit different. Um, other than being efficient, which I think is an incredibly important thing, um, what kind of like other benefits are there to having one of these types of tools implemented in a state? Yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of our states have some form of dashboard already, even before we started working with them. But one of the advantages of our platform is that it is in real time. So you can get data on who was in your facilities, who was being supervised, and who among your uh, line staff officers was responsible for which clients as of yesterday. So it's, it's as real time as you could get. Um, so that's, that's one advantage is that it's a lot faster. If you go to a lot of the websites for some departments of corrections in the US, you'll see that they have a research page typically with reports, but a lot of these reports are for a year ago or two years ago. And going into the pandemic, a lot of states needed to shrink their populations because there was disease spread that was happening very quickly. And more recently, there's been staffing shortages in a lot of the states. And if you're using data that are two years lagged, it's hard to make good decisions if you can't know what's happening today. Um, so another, I, th I think, uh, strength of the platform is that it works in as close to real time as possible. Thank you for diving into that um, a bit more. And that definitely, um, when you kind of bring the example of when, you know, the pandemic had first hit and like some of those challenges, I could see how something like that would be uh, beneficial to, to have implemented because it was a real kind of backlog for a lot of folks trying to make decisions. And, um, you know, governors were scrambling to kind of get their leaders together to see like, how, how do we manage the situation and how do we get folks safe? So um, thank you for detailing that out. I did also have Another question about, you had said there's these public interfaces, um, like data sets that you provide their recidivists, um, but that they're limited because of privacy. And could you explain a little bit more about what they do contain and why they are limited due to privacy? Absolutely. So we, we have public dashboards in a few of our states, and you can find this uh, like you, if you if you Google recidivis and one of our states that has one of these dashboards, it should pop up. Um, there's one for North Dakota. There's one for Pennsylvania, and I believe there's also one for Idaho. Although I might be misspeaking there. And when you look at these dashboards, you typically can see uh, population counts broken down by one variable. So that might be by age or by ethnicity or uh, by where in the state people are located. And the reason we can't go more granular than say one variable is you don't want to violate the privacy of justice impacted individuals. So ideally our tools are being used to help identify things like bias and things that uh, states can adjust and maybe should write legislation for, but we don't want to do that at the cost of embarrassing someone or making it harder for someone to get a job. On the other hand, if you're a leader of a corrections agency, and you have to help individuals get access to programming, you really do need that individual level data. So it, it makes a lot of sense that the internal tools would have as granular data as you could have. But for public data, you got to strike the right balance between privacy and providing useful information. 
That's great. Yeah, that's great to hear. And obviously, like with an organization such as yours, you guys are going to have those ethical um, concerns at like the forefront. And I, I think that's important to communicate to folks because there's always like a weariness around technology and how it's being used, um, which I think that I do want to get back to and touch on in this interview because I have so many questions for you. But I have to be honest, I'm incredibly interested in the legislative impact modeling. I that that definitely rang true to the work that I do. And with a lot of the folks that we've had on and interviewed, I think um, they're going to want to know what that is. What what do you mean? Like, what is this package that you're offering? What how are you um, putting this together? Because it sounds really fascinating. I know legislation can really help or harm people. And um, sometimes it costs a lot. Sometimes things can be done for free. So how do you guys put those things together um, so that us on the ground, you know, trying to advocate for things uh, can do so more effectively? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be great if every piece of legislation that affects justice impacted individuals, we would know what the effect is on those populations and uh, how it might contribute to or help address some existing disparities. And we're trying to fill part of that gap. Uh, if you go to our website, we actually have a, a tab for our impact models. And most of them, actually, I believe all of the models that we produce um, are public. And the way it typically works is someone who's interested in a memo, uh, it might be an interest group, it might be um, a member working for a legislator, they come to Recidivis and ask us to model some policy that's been proposed. And they give us the details of the policy and who it might affect. We then use one of our impact projection models to see how it might affect the costs in the populations. We typically project the effect of policies over the next five years. So most of these memos will give you an estimate of how many fewer people or more people will be in prison or parole or probation, how many life years you might save or contribute, and how many dollars uh, taxpayers might save or have to contribute due to that policy. And wow. what we try to do is get as close to the right answer as possible. So it's it's not there, there's no stance taken in any of these memos. It's just given the data that is available, which often is is not very good. And we actually put at the bottom of our memo um, a rating of data quality. Um, what's really fortunate is for our state partners, we're able to give more accurate projections because we do have person-level data from our state partners. Um, but in a lot of cases, we're interested in looking at policies that we don't have uh, state partner data for. And so we try to get as good public data as possible and, and make reasonable assumptions where you have to. But um, yeah, I, I would encourage anyone to check out some of these memos. There's a quite a bit of policy on the radar for 2023 that I think is really promising. And if politicians and other policymakers can see what the effects of these policies might be, I think that might lead to better decisions. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think the question that's gonna be on everyone's minds um, or might be on other people's minds while they're listening to this right now is like the peek behind the curtain. Like what is it, how are these calculations being made? What's the methodology? I know you probably can't go super deep into it, but you know, how is it a combination of technology and experts or, you know, who's making the decisions to say that this policy does that and this is the outcome that it's going to have? Yeah, it's a great question. 
our model is open source. So um, any, anyone actually could use the model if they like to. We actually have a group at Stanford who is using our model. Um, it's, it's a student group. One of our interns is now, I believe, a rising junior at Stanford. And he was so impressed and amazed using this model that he wanted to start a club that's all about continuing it and trying to project the impact of even more policies than we had bandwidth for. The model that we use at a high level is a stock and flow model. And what we do is we, we look at existing transitions between different compartments in the justice world. So again, that might be like prison and supervision, for example, or supervision to release. And so you see these different transitions between all these different compartments. And we use a very common uh, forecasting mechanism called an ARIMA model. And I'll, I'll spare you the details there, but you can basically think of it as there's a trend happening for these different transitions. And we use this ARIMA model to predict what's going to happen to those transitions in the future. And then that gives you a baseline. This is what we think the population is going to be with no intervention at all. We then apply uh, what is effectively a, a causal effect estimate. So given the details of the policy and given uh, research that's been published on uh, related policies in other states, use one of those estimates of the causal effect of that policy to uh, adjust one of the parameters in the model. So if we're looking at, say, uh, marijuana legalization, we can use other states that have already legalized marijuana to see what happened to their flows. And we can then take that estimate and apply it to the current state we're estimating the effect of legalization for. So it relies kind of on, on two main things. One is, what is the trend happening in the particular state we're looking at? And the second is, what is the expected effect of one of those flows given what's happened in the past in other states. That's amazing. Sounds incredibly interesting. And I'd love to be like a fly on the wall watching all of that take place. So <laughs> I'm glad you're doing the work that you're doing there. Um, and, and I look forward to digging into it more myself. Um, and I think, you know, our listeners, a lot of our listeners across the United States, I think will find these tools really helpful as well. Um, you know, it, it, I'm really curious, how did you get into this work? Like, why is this work important to you? So I, I started my uh, PhD in economics at UC San Diego about seven years ago. And when I first went to do the PhD, I, I, I really wanted to be a professor. I just loved doing research with my faculty members during undergrad. And I felt like I can make a difference in the world sharing research findings and, and helping uh, policymakers make better decisions through the, that research. And one thing that I, I was really frustrated by was how uh, was was the pace of academia. Um, you, you, you've ever heard of the 80-20 rule? Maybe, probably not. The, the idea of the 80-20 rule is the first 20% of your time will give you about 80% of the results. Uh, so in, in academia, if you're trying to get the, an answer to a question, you can usually get 80% towards the answer with about 20% of the work. But that last 20% of the answer takes a lot of time. And I, I got really frustrated with how long it was taking to uh, to really finish a paper. In, in academia, you have to fully finish a paper if you want it to publish well. And I was ready to work on new things, and I, I, I felt like my time wasn't being used well to, to help people. And so I, I started looking, um, as I was wrapping up my dissertation, I started looking for jobs that were not academic and stumbled upon Recidiviz, 
and the model that they were using. And it just seemed so much higher impact than maybe passing uh, or maybe writing a paper that leads to a very important law being passed. Um, and I, I've actually heard this from other faculty, from, from faculty members who've been working in academia for a long time, is they, they put so much time into, into their work. And, you know, we, we need academics to do that. But it's, it's really great to hear that and to see that we have people on the ground who are actually applying that work. Um, so when I found recidivism, it just seemed like a natural fit between what I wanted to do professionally and a place where I could use the skills I developed in graduate school to make a tangible difference and to do so quickly. Um, like I, I think in a typical week, I might touch five different projects at recidivism, and that's not true in the academic world. Um, so it's been very intellectually satisfying working at recidivism and also very fulfilling. Yeah, that's exciting. It sounds like the impact is something that's really important to you and seeing that larger impact in the world. So um, that's exciting. So how, like, so what do you think is the importance of technology and data in criminal legal reform? Oh man, where to start? <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's so much that data can tell us. One thing is if you can't observe a problem, it's really hard to fix it. And it's, it's very well established that there are uh, large racial disparities in the justice world. And I think one of the barriers to fixing these disparities is that in a, in a lot of places, we're not using real-time data. We're using old data. We, we know these disparities existed 10 years ago, but we really need to know what's happening today. Where are people transitioning? What are the differences between different groups in these transitions? And I, I think a step in the right direction is at the very least knowing what the ground truth is in our states. So I think that's a really big piece. Another is uh, knowing the uh, the impact of new policies and new programs as they're being introduced. Like a lot of a lot of the a lot of states have what sound like extremely exciting rehabilitative programs, and I'm thrilled to see that. But one thing that I think could use a little bit more attention is having uh, someone who knows how to estimate the effects of these programs help design the rollout of them. A lot of these programs are oversubscribed. So an example that I'm thinking of is uh, a lot of these job training programs. There's usually more demand for these programs than there are spots in the program. And so there you have a natural control group. The, the people who aren't able to take part in these job training programs because there's no room for them, uh, those are people who at, at no fault of their own uh, aren't able to be in the program. And so if, if you're not able to help them directly, at the very least, look at what's happening between your two groups. Because if your program is working really well, you could take that information and use it during the next budget hearing and say, look, we, we have this job training program. It works super well, and it would pay for itself if we scaled it up a little bit. Um, but what seems to happen too often is these new programs get rolled out and there's not a lot of attention paid to analyzing the effects of the programs. It's usually like it, it, it comes across as an afterthought. Um, so these programs get rolled out. They seem anecdotally like wonderful programs. And ex post facto, you try to get some estimate of the effect of the program, but there is no control group at that point. Um, so I, I think one thing that I would like to see happen where uh, data could be used to have a big impact is before even starting rolling out the program, talk to someone 
who knows how to analyze the effect of it and then design the rollout in such a way where you can get a good estimate. Uh, and that's one thing that we're being very mindful of at Recidive is as we roll out our tools to different states, we want to be darn sure that we're we're having a positive effect on the populations. Like the last thing we want to see is that one of our tools led to worse outcomes. Um, so we we dedicate a, a lot of our analysis time to making sure that all of our tools are working as we expect them to. That's great. Thank you for diving into that. I was thinking, you know, while you were explaining that of just about how many programs there are out there, you know, and then that's conversations I've had with other folks um, that have been on the chat, like outside, you know, outside of our interviews too, of just like, how do we kind of condense stuff into uh, knowing what's most effective and then highlighting that? Because I think it is overwhelming for somebody that is involved in the criminal legal system, right? They might be looking for services. Like you said, they might not be able to access them um, or it might not be one that's really effective. And so, you know, I'd love to hear more about um, the work that you're doing in that area, you know, outside of this and, and potentially highlight some of those programs on the chat that are shown to be effective so we can make sure that people are hearing about what's working and are able to access those things. I think that's so important to moving forward um, with responsible criminal legal reform. And you had mentioned earlier too, uh, you know, you don't want to do anything to harm folks, right? You want to make sure that the things that you're rolling out are things that are effective and that are working. And so what places, like what kind of measures does recidivists have in place to make sure that tech, this kind of technology isn't replicating those historic harms that have been so ingrained in the criminal legal system of bias and things like that? Yeah, I'd love to tell you a little bit about our line staff tools and how we look at outcomes for those tools. In a lot of states, there are opportunities for people on supervision and people in prison that are already baked into the, the state law. But it's really hard because of the sheer number of people in the system to make sure that every person eligible for these opportunities ends up being granted those opportunities. And an example of an opportunity I'm thinking of is something like a supervision level downgrade. So if, if someone's on parole and they've met all the requirements of parole for X number of months and there's been no indication of any uh uh, increase in risk among that person as the state defines it, often that person can downgrade their supervision level, which in some cases might come with fewer meetings with a parole officer or maybe even only having to check in online instead of having to go in person to a to the parole officer's office and meet face to face. And you know theoretically, this has implications of uh, for reducing future crime. Um, imagine a person who has a job, and they have to work from eight o'clock in the morning until four o'clock in the afternoon. If the parole officer says, you must come to my office at 2 p.m., there's not usually a lot of flexibility there. And it's kind of, first of all, it's embarrassing to have to tell your employer, hey, I'm really sorry, but I have to go to this meeting with my parole officer. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a little inhumane even. Um, so if someone doesn't have to meet in person at all, and they just have to check in online, it's a lot less onerous on that person um, to have that option. So theoretically, supervision downgrades, we think, are a good thing. And uh, a, a few of our partner states have 
these opportunities baked into the state laws. So there's no legislative change needed, but some people don't get these opportunities granted because they get lost. There's just too many people uh, to keep track of. And the data systems in a lot of cases aren't easily highlighting who's eligible. So in one of our tools, we built that. We, we made it very easy to see who is eligible for a supervision level downgrade. Um, part of the reason too why this is so complicated is the law is often complicated. And for some of these downgrades, there's 10 different databases that you have to check to make sure that the person checks all the boxes. And the form that you have to fill out as a parole officer is very long. And it, in, often, in many cases, it's handwritten. You have to actually handwrite out the form because it's not PDF uh, editable. So in our tool, we have uh, two things. One is we highlight which clients are currently eligible and which ones will be eligible soon or are almost eligible for this downgrade. And then when the parole officer works with our tool, what he or she will see is that uh, for someone who's eligible, the form that's required to be filled out to get this opportunity granted, uh, we fill it out for them as, as much as we can with the details found in the data. Uh, it's really slick. You, you click the person's name and this uh, PDF pops up and all the letters fly onto the page. And 90% of the work is, is done at that point. So we make it really easy to help parole officers do a regular task as part of their job much faster. And what we've seen, and I should say these data are preliminary, and at some point we, we hope to, to make these data um, more publicly available. But so far, it does look like our tools help increase the number of grants overall. So there's more opportunities granted. But moreover, they happen a lot faster. So someone who might get a supervision level downgrade, regardless of, uh, like they, they might get it even if we didn't have a tool, it might take you know, 15, 30 days longer to get that downgrade um, compared to how long it takes with the tool available. So the, the tool seems to increase the number of downgrades and grant them a lot faster, uh, which we're, we're really excited by. And uh, to answer your question about what are you looking at to make sure that there's not an increase in harm, we can observe personal-level data um, from, from this tool. And so one thing that we can monitor is, is there a effect that's larger for members of certain groups? Like are, are officers using the tool only to help members of a certain race or members of a certain gender? And uh, so far, we haven't seen that, um, but we're able to monitor it in real time. So if one of our tools did start to lean a certain way, we could take action to address that. That's great. I'm glad you got to that at the end because I mean, I find it really, I find it fascinating to obviously make things faster and um, really incredibly important for all those lives that are being impacted and people that might be able to be, you know, um, have more flexibility in their conditions or maybe get released and be with their families, especially if they're not a safety threat. But that that last piece is so key um, as far as those quality assurance checks and just making sure that, you know, that the data that's being looked at isn't replicating the same harms. You know, we've had some legislation go through decarceration legislation, and then the only people that were getting released were, you know, white men. Um, and I think sometimes there's just things that people don't necessarily think to look at. And of course, with the organization as large and, and, and well put together as yours, I'm sure that you are. Um, but I mean, you know, we know that that black and brown community members are laws have been created right to harm and criminalize those folks. And sometimes we see 
um, even in the things that are meant to help that it's not necessary, not necessarily helping because they've, there have already been kind of mechanisms that have been put in place to say that these people are unsafe. And same thing with folks with disabilities, LGBTQ populations, and typically um, people in poverty as well. So do you guys have, I know you said that some of this stuff is in like preliminary stages. Like, do you have those quality assurance checks? You said that you could go in and, and look at those things, but can you really go in and detailed say, you know, are we, is it showing that people that are safe are, you know, only of one demographic? And if so, that you can make those adjustments accordingly to, to kind of redefine what safety means. And that's a yeah. huge question, but I just wanted to make sure to really nail it home. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate your thoughtfulness for this question because it's it's definitely an important question. We cannot observe all the variables that you just brought up. Like, for example, we we don't have a measure of income among the people in our data. So we're not able to say something like um, our tools are only benefiting members of uh, a certain income class compared to others. Uh, but we we are able to observe demographics that our state partners are able to observe, and that tends to include ethnicity, age, gender, uh, and a handful of other um, handful of other categories. We can also observe risk information, um, but we, we've been very hesitant to make judgments on that because of concerns of baked in um, biases in those risk scores. Um, so we, we cannot check against every single demographic that we like to check, but the ones that we can, we, we do check against to make sure that um, the rates of transitions are not disparate across these different protected groups. That's great. That's good. I always like quality assurance checks, you know, when you're dealing with technology and data and the criminal legal system. So um, especially when we're making things smoother and better for folks to be able to, you know, like you said, have more access to opportunities. Um, so I just have one last question for you, which is, is there a bit of advice or encouragement um, that has been helpful to you that you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, maybe in that transition period when you were, you know, in academia and you weren't sure which steps to take next, um, just some advice or tips for our listeners to, to help encourage them on the next steps that they have in their life? Wow. I feel blessed to have been given a lot of advice uh, over the years. I think some of the best advice I've been given is uh, always keep reading. There's so much knowledge out there. And personally, I feel like the more that I read, the more I realize how little I know. And if if not for reading, I don't think I would have discovered the issues that we have in our justice world. Um and the, the more you read about it, the more you realize how nuanced it is and how many issues there are and how much there is to fix. So I, I do think uh, keep reading is a great piece of advice. Um, another piece of advice that I, I feel I uh, use all the time, even if it's not necessarily even work, um, I had a teacher um, who would always say, uh, do everything slow, relaxed, and with good technique. And sometimes driving in Southern California, where I live, it, it can be very frustrating. <laughs> and just take a deep breath and say, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go through this slow, relaxing with good technique." <laughs> and I feel like that comes back time and time again. Um, and in our work, a lot of the stuff we see can be very dismal. And uh, some of these stories coming out of different facilities is horrifying. 
And I think it's important to know that there are people out there who are trying to make it better. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, so I, I think the last piece of advice is don't give up hope. Um, we can't improve the world without knowing what the problems are. So we shouldn't try to bury our heads in the sand. We should look for the problems and see what the problems are and dedicate yourself to it and try to make a difference. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. That's such great advice. Um, all of that. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work at Recidivis. Uh, we'll make sure to put the the link to the website in so people can check things out and, um, and look at the good work that you're doing over there. So appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Thank you for being with us for another episode of The Chat. We appreciate all of our listeners, viewers, and supporters. If you want to know more about The Uplift in The Chat, head over to our website at www.upliftmentors.org. Join our coalition, drop us a donation, or just spread some love and share this around with your friends and family.